Well, I feel like I'm at the Academy Awards right there, just watching that video. Uh, it's a wonderful video. My name is Tim Park. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting for the first time, a very special welcome to you, to our church here. We hope that you sense the love of Jesus in your visit. If you're joining us online, we're always thankful that you're tuning in. You know, last week, Pastor Lou kicked off our new series, Storyline. God's purpose fulfilled through people like us, and he gave us the, the big picture of the Bible. And between now and the end of this year, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some people in the Bible and see what impact they and their lives have on us here in the 21st century. And today's title for our message is Clothed in God's Grace, the story of Adam and Eve. Clothed in God's Grace, the story of Adam and Eve. And we're going to be in Genesis at the end of chapter 1 from verse 26 to the end of chapter 20, I'm sorry, the end of chapter 3, verse 24. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to start by reading verses 26 and 27. Here's what the Word of God says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is a hugely important passage because it sets the foundation for all of humanity. And if we were to look at the creation order in the previous verses in chapter 1, what you would find is this. Every time something is created, we get the command, let there be. So if you were to read the entire chapter 1 up until this point, you would read, let there be. Let there be light, let there be land, let there be water, and so on. But here in verse 26 and verse 27, that command, it changes. It's no longer let there be. It becomes very personal. It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. At the height of creation, God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In other words, the triune God in counsel with himself said, let us make mankind in our image. It became very personal. Now, we know that children often inherit the physical characteristics of their parents. But oftentimes, children, they take on the personalities of their parents as well. That's why people, as they get older, they find themselves muttering the words, oh, I've become my dad. I've become my mom. Oh, no. Well, you and I, we've been made in the image of God. When God created man and woman, it was very personal to him. And he created us to have a relationship with him. He created us to have a bond with him. And when you think about the word bond, you automatically think about sticky. He created us to have a relationship that would stick close with him. 
much like our pets like to stick with us. You know, our pets, they can teach us so much about our relationship with God, can't they? You know, dogs, they know their master. Dogs, they, they want to be uh, approved by their master. Dogs want to please their owners. You know, every morning, there's a routine in our household. I'll go downstairs, and then our German Shepherd Kingston, he sleeps downstairs in the family room. He'll greet me downstairs, and we get ready for our morning run. Every morning, we run together. And so I take him into the garage, and here's what happens. I sit down on a bench in our garage, and I get my shoes, and I proceed to lace up my shoes. But every morning as I'm in the process of lacing up my shoes, Kingston will walk right in front of me, on the, I'm sitting on the bench. He'll sit tall, and he's a big dog, so he sees me eye to eye, and he'll just stare at me. He'll just stare at me while I'm lacing my shoes. And then as he's staring at me, he'll do this. He'll lift his paw in, in midair trying to balance himself until I actually receive his paw. And then he places his paw on my leg as I'm lacing up my shoes. And all the while, he's staring right at me. And then he'll start to lick my hand. And he'll keep licking it and licking it until I say, Kingston, we got to go now. But he'll stare at me forever if I just keep looking back at him. You know, our dogs, they, they want to please us. They want approval from us. They are dependent on us. They want to be loved by us. When God created man and woman, it was very personal. He created us to have a relationship with him. And speaking of personal, if you were to go back and read the entire first chapter of Genesis, here's what you would find. You would find a macro, a macro picture of creation. It's a big picture. It's dramatic. But then if you go to chapter 2 and you read chapter 2, what chapter 2 does is it actually goes back and revisits the creation account, but from a micro perspective, a very personal, intimate perspective. So you can look at it this way. If you view creation through the lens of a motion picture, and that's appropriate because we're talking about storyline here in our series. So if you view creation from a motion picture perspective, Chapter 1 is this sweeping, vast, pullback shot of the entire landscape. It's epic. It's dramatic. And then chapter 2 comes in with all the tight shots. You see, because no cinematographer would just give you a pullback shot for two hours because all the people would look like little ants. So you have to zoom in close and see all the facial features of the actors to know what they're thinking, to look inside their soul. So chapter 2 is the intimate micro-perspective of the macro-perspective that chapter 1 gave us. And so in chapter 1, we read that man was created in God's image. But now let's look even closer. Let's zoom in. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust 
of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, I want you to look closely here at the description of God. It says here, then the Lord God. If if you were to go back to chapter 1, you see that every time that the word God appears in chapter 1, it's simply God. In chapter 1, the name used for God is Elohim. That's the standard word for God in the Old Testament. However, in chapter 2, it changes. It becomes Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh means Lord. It's a very personal name. So Elohim in chapter 1 becomes Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2. And this refers to the God of covenant, the God of promise, the God who made the vast heavens in chapter 1 would create a blue planet, as Pastor Luke mentioned last week. And on this blue planet, he would create a beautiful green garden. And he created this garden for the crown of his creation to enjoy. And if you look at verse 7 again closely, you'll notice two aspects of our heritage as human beings. This is our history as human beings. We come from the earth, and we come from God's breath. That's our heritage. We come from the earth, and we come from God's breath. So God formed man from the dust of the ground. We're connected to the earth. That's why little kids always want to play in the dirt. That's why little kids want to eat dirt. So every time your kid plays in the sandbox, it's really a homecoming. It's going back to our roots. We come from the earth. God gathered together the dust of the earth, and he formed a human body, and then he he breathed on it. God created something from nothing. No one else can say that. God created something from absolutely nothing, and his likeness was given to all of mankind from the very beginning. And do you know what the first thing man saw when he woke up was? The very first thing that man saw was the face of God. The face of God staring back at him. For you parents out there whose kids are no longer really tiny, think back to when your children were just babies. You could just watch them sleep for hours. You could just watch them and watch them just sleeping peacefully in their crib. And sometimes you'd kiss them and you'd kiss them awake. Now, I know most of the time you just want them to sleep and keep sleeping. So usually it's grandma or grandpa that tries to kiss the baby awake so they can play with baby. You know, on Sundays here at church, I I love all our babies here at our church. They're the cutest things. And every week when they come in and I see the strollers, I look in there, I'm like, I hope they're not sleeping. Because I just want them to look up me, at me and smile at me. Because they're my favorite people. <laughs> and they make my day, my day when they smile. The very first thing that man saw was the face of God. 
I want you to continue on here and look at verses 8 and 9. It says here, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of, li were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eden was an extraordinarily beautiful place. Eden means luxury. And Eden was watered by four rivers. That's how lush it was. It was abundant with life. And the glory of God's presence was evident in the garden. And verse 15 tells us this. The Lord God put or took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let's focus in on an important word in verse 15. It's the word put. You know, there's a difference between putting something somewhere haphazardly that has no value compared to placing something carefully that has a lot of value. Junk mail, you just toss it aside. Find jewelry, you place it carefully in the felt-lined drawer. In the English translation, when it says that God took the man and put him in the garden, we lose a lot of the special meaning of that phrase, that God put him in the garden. When God put man in the garden, what it means is that he carefully placed Adam in the garden to find safety in his presence. Much like you and I would carefully lower a baby into the crib. That speaks to the intimate perspective of chapter 2. And you'll notice a certain tree is featured in verse 17, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God intended Adam to learn about good and evil through obedience. And in order for Adam to fully express his love for God, Adam had to have been given the choice to obey or disobey. You see, mankind needed a way to return God's love. And so God carefully placed Adam in the garden and provided him with abundance. But he wasn't done. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the word helper is often misunderstood. And again, this is where our English translation falls short. Sometimes when we think of the word helper, we think of certain things, certain people. But maybe this will help, all right? No pun intended there, but maybe this will help. In the Psalms, David asks God to be his helper. You can find that in Psalm 30, verse 10. 
David asks God to be his helper. The word for helper in the Psalms is the very word that's used in Genesis 2 when it says that God would make Adam a helper. The point is this. God had plans for Adam that Adam could not fulfill without a partner. Adam was incomplete without Eve. And so Adam and Eve together lived in the Garden of Eden. But now we know what happens next in the story. An antagonist appears in the form of a clever, crafty, deceitful serpent. And the serpent puts a thought in Eve's mind. And this is usually how temptation begins. There's a certain thought that enters our mind. And here's what the serpent asked Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, we know that God didn't say that. What God said was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's how Satan works. He's the deceiver. He's good at putting doubts in our minds. And he often does so in the form of a question. Are you really satisfied in life? Don't you want just a little bit more? Look what they have. Don't you want that? And today, in our day and age, FOMO is real, right? It is real. The fear of missing out is so real. And it can be debilitating. And it can cause anxiety as we see posts from our friends, our neighbors, others. And we say, wow, I don't have that. I don't experience that. I'm missing out. What do I need to do to get what they have? What do I need to do to experience what they experience? And so what happens is Satan often enters our minds by filling our minds with doubt. Are you truly satisfied? Couldn't you do with just a little bit more? If you think about all the movies out there, all the series that we watch, think about the storyline of discontentment leads to greed, which ultimately leads to tragedy. I bet you every one of us right now could think of at least one movie or one series that we've watched in the last month or so that has that storyline. Discontentment leads to greed, which ultimately leads to tragedy. There are far too many titles for me to even name. It all begins with doubt. You know, so you might say that the first act of sin in the garden, it wasn't so much an act of absolute wickedness as much as it was just an act of utter foolishness. That's how it began. Adam and Eve had everything they could ever want to be satisfied, and God gave them one boundary for their own good, but they couldn't resist how many times have you been to an all-you-can-eat restaurant and you know you shouldn't have that last plate? You know you don't need that last plate, but you got to get your money's worth, right? 
And so you're full. If you walked out, you'd be content. But no, no, you got to get your money's worth. And so one more trip. And so you, you stuff your body with that final plate, and you're like, wait a minute. There's always room for dessert. So you sample all the desserts. And then what happens is you waddle out of the restaurant saying, I don't feel too good. We've all been there. One author says this. God's restriction was a reminder to Adam and Eve that they were created to live in an environment of dependent obedience. Dependent obedience. And chapter 3 of Genesis is all about the call to dependent obedience. All they had to do was trust and obey But the serpent takes Eve down this dangerous path, which ultimately leads Adam to make a foolish choice. And it all stemmed from the question, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's look at Eve's response. Go to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Thus begins the downward spiral. God never said don't touch it, right? Eve added that part in. And that's a good lesson for us, because God doesn't need us to put words in his mouth. And here's what happens next. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This flatly contradicts what God said. But by this time of the temptation, Eve was so hooked that the serpent throws subtlety out the window. He says, You will not die. You won't die. Nothing bad's going to happen. In fact, Eve, God's holding out on you. You deserve the best. So what happens? Eve takes the fruit, eats it. She gives some to her husband. He eats it. They were enticed. And the Bible tells us that it was a delight to her eyes. There's a passage in the New Testament that talks about enticement. It's found in James chapter 1. And I want to read to you verses 14 and 15. It says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. When we are enticed by something that we know is outside the will of God, the longer we fix our minds on it, the more likely we are to act on it. That is a sure fact. The longer we fix our minds on something, the more likely we are to act on it. 
And then one bad decision often leads to another bad decision, to another bad decision, so much so that oftentimes Christians ask themselves the question, how did I end up here? How did I end up here? Adam and Eve disobeyed, and their disobedience snowballed into further action that only saw them spiral further downward. Their eyes were opened, and for the very first time, you know what happened? They recognized their nakedness. Their innocence was gone. Isn't it true, little kids, for whatever reason, if left to themselves, they would like, they like to run around with little or no clothes on. Now, parents, please, just keep them confined to your house, right? I don't want to see them out and about running around with little or no clothes on. That's just wrong. But for some reason, little kids, they just love to run around with little clothes on. But even kids, when they get to a certain age and they run around, they're like, Mom, Dad, come on, clothe me. Put something on me. This is embarrassing. You see, kids, at some point, they recognize their innocence is gone. Adam and Eve, the moment they ate of the fruit, they were made aware of their shame. They noticed their nakedness for the very first time. Up until that point, they were naked, but they didn't notice it. The temperature was perfect. But all of a sudden, not only did they recognize their own nakedness, they saw each other's nakedness, and they were embarrassed for the other. So they tried to cover themselves. Listen to these insightful words. By eating the fruit, Adam and Eve declared themselves independent from God. And now they were totally dependent on themselves. And a new sense of inadequacy overtook them. Again, by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve, they declared themselves independent from God. And now they were totally dependent on themselves, and a new sense of inadequacy overtook them. For the first time, it felt like everybody was staring at them. They were ashamed of what they had done. And in their nakedness, again, they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And once they covered themselves up, they felt still ashamed, and they heard, they heard God walking in the garden. So do you know what they did next? They hid themselves, which is kind of funny. They hid themselves from God. Our son Andrew is... Uh, visiting us this weekend from up north where he lives in Santa Cruz, and he serves up there at his church up there in that area. But he's here this weekend, and so this is the perfect time to share a story and embarrass him, all right? Because after all, that's what parents do. When Andrew and Amanda were much, much younger, when they were just tiny little kids, I used to love playing hide-and-seek with them in our apartment at that time. So it went something like this. I would count in the living room. One, two, three. And Andrew and Amanda, Andrew is like a couple years older than Amanda. 
they would start to go high. And I could hear them kind of scurrying back to the back bedroom. And Amanda was so small that she just followed her older brother to his hiding spot. And so I'm counting one, two, three, and they go back, and usually the hiding spot was in the back room in the corner, and they would just go there, and they would crouch in the corner with no covering. Because little kids think, as long as I stand in the corner and stare at the corner and close my eyes, no one will see me. And so I'd go to the bedroom, I'd go, where are you, where are you? And all the while, there they are in the corner, thinking that they're invisible. It's cute playing hide-and-seek with little kids, right? It's sad seeing grown men and women trying to hide from God. You see, Adam and Eve, they should have run to their father. Instead, they tried to hide from him. And so the downward spiral continued. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They hid from God. And then, then they played the blame game. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God asks Adam, Adam, what would you do? And instead of saying, God, I am so sorry. I am guilty. Please forgive me. Adam immediately starts to play the blame game. He says, it was a woman. Go get her. It was her fault. And if that wasn't bad enough, oh, it was the woman you put here with me. So somehow Adam found a way to blame two people in one sentence. God is the woman you put here with me. And then Eve blames the serpent. Church, we're good at blaming other people, aren't we? As human beings, we are so good at blaming others. And even in our apologies, we end up blaming others. I'm sorry, but, you know, if you wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. I'm sorry, but if this didn't happen, I wouldn't have reacted. It was bad enough that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. When they tried to cover it up by blaming others, here's what happened. It altered their relationship. First, it altered their relationship with God. Secondly, it altered their relationship with each other as husband and wife. And then thirdly, it altered their relationship with creation. So here they are at the pit of this downward spiral. But I want to leave you with hope. You see, the story of Adam and Eve, more than anything else, 
Okay? It's not about Adam and Eve. The story of Adam and Eve is a story of redemption. The main characters are not Adam and Eve. It's not the serpent. The main character is God. It's a story of redemption. You see, the God of creation is the God of redemption. God covered the man and woman. He said, no, those fig leaves, they won't do. So God provided the skins of an animal. God, the God of creation, covered the crown of creation because he is the God of redemption. When God covered the man and woman's nakedness with animal skins, it was a foreshadowing of the priestly work that would be done in the tabernacle. You see, an animal was sacrificed to provide skins for Adam and Eve. When the high priest entered a room called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, he would take with him the blood of a goat to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. At the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, you would read about how God placed cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Later in the tabernacle, God had placed cherubim on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was housed in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. The garden foreshadowed the tabernacle. The tabernacle foreshadowed the cross. You see, you and I, before coming to Christ, we were dead in our sins. We weren't sick. We were dead in our sins. We were alienated from God. And the only way back to him is found in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. God poured out his grace on Adam and Eve when he clothed them. God poured out his grace on us and he clothed us with righteousness when Jesus went to the cross. We took on the righteousness of Jesus because when he died, here's what happened. He gave us the ability to now become a new creation. You see, at the point of salvation, our former self died. Our former self passed away. When God saved us, he gave us a new nature. And our new nature came with it, a brand new wardrobe. You see, when we were saved, at the point of justification, here's what happened. We took on Christ's righteousness. We were clothed with his righteousness. One day in the future, we will be glorified. We will receive incorruptible bodies. In this long stage between justification and glorification, we are in this stage called sanctification, where we are learning to become more like Jesus. But here's what often confuses followers of Jesus. What we want to know is this. 
God uses our birth and not our behavior to define who we are. He uses our birth, not our behavior, to define who we are. And so by position, because of our new birth in Christ, you and I are no longer sinners by position. We are now called saints. So if you survey the entire New Testament, and the Apostle Paul calls the believers saints, you were once dead in your trespasses. You are now alive in Christ. And far too often, here's what happens. Those who have put their faith in Jesus, they keep identifying with the old Adam. And they use that as a justification. You know, I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner. Before Christ, we were sinners by position. When we were justified, we became saints. And so church, what we ought to be doing is we ought to be proclaiming Jesus to one another and sharing about the victories that we experience in Christ each and every day. And how can we do that? Well, we can do that because we know that we are no longer in bondage to sin because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives us freedom from sin. We are no longer bound by that. So by nature, I am no longer a sinner. I'm no longer sinful by nature. Yes, I will continue to sin because I am so used to the former self. But as we move closer to Christ, we become more and more like Jesus. And so God defines us by our birth, not our behavior. And because of our birth, God says, live according to your new nature. We no longer identify with the old Adam. We have a new Adam in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to effect change in our lives. Maybe some of you are visiting today, and maybe you might be hearing this for the very first time. And you're thinking, well, I just want to be good enough to enter heaven. And I want to share with you that no one can be good enough. We can never be good enough to earn favor with God. If we come to God and say, God, I am not good enough. I can never be good enough. Would you give me the righteousness, righteousness of Christ? He can save you. And then he defines you by that birth. And then he calls you to live according to that. And in the stage of sanctification, which is long, we will have times where we see victories. Sometimes we see defeats. But the further we get in this life, the further and closer we get to Christ. If a life of obedience is what characterized us before being saved, then a life of obedience is what ought to characterize us. And so, my encouragement to you is this. This week, as you go throughout your life, live according to your nature. And as you do so, as you see victory in your life, 
Can I ask you, share that with your groups? Share that with your life group? Share that with your accountability group? Share that with your prayer group? Yes, it's important. It's important to share about our struggles, and we do that. But if all we do is dwell on our struggles, and a year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, if all we've done is dwell on our struggles, where is Christ in our lives? So encourage one another in your groups this week when you meet and share with them a victory that you experienced in Christ. You know, friends in your life group, you could say, hey, friends, hey, buddies, this week I, I was tempted in this area, but God gave me victory, and I did not give into it. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, uh, friends, uh, this week I, I was about to get angry at so-and-so. But you know what? I paused, I prayed, and God gave me victory over that. And I want to share that win with you so you can be encouraged. And so this week, let's identify with the new Adam because the old Adam is dead. And that's my encouragement to us. We are clothed in God's grace, so let's put on the new wardrobe Toss all that ugly stuff away. Burn it. We no longer need it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of redemption. As we think back to the garden, thank you that your hand, your hand of redemption was over the garden. Thank you for covering Adam and Eve and clothing them in your grace. Thank you for clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you define us by our birth. And our prayer is that our behavior would reflect our birth. And this week, help us, Lord, to behave like followers of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, God, help us also to share that with those around us, that they may be encouraged by the victory that we experience in our lives. We give you all glory and praise. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.